Today on Care Under Fire, I'm with former Special Forces medic, Brad Watts. Brad's now a mountaineer and has had an extensive career. He received a Distinguished Service Medal for his bravery under fire treating a soldier in Afghanistan. Thanks for coming on to the podcast, Brad. Uh, thanks for having me. It's a real privilege to be here. Tell me about your younger years growing up and how you went at school. Um, so... I was born in Alice Springs. I think I'm one of the 10 people ever to claim that and uh, and grew up in, in Darwin. I guess my childhood was fairly unremarkable. It, you know, I went to a, a good school. I grew up in a, a fairly low socioeconomic area and in fact, a very, very bad street. But uh, my parents pulled together what money they did have and sent me to a private school. And yeah, I guess... I was lucky enough to have a lot of opportunities in that school and to you know meet people from all different walks of life uh, back then in Darwin. And uh, yeah, I think nothing really much more to say about that. Growing up in Darwin, clearly heaps of military around up there. Was that uh, seeing them out and about your driver to join or was there something else that really motivated you back in 98 to sign on the dotted line? Yeah, I think um, I think anyone that knew me throughout my childhood probably knew that I was going to join the army. I'd always been fascinated with it, and uh, one brigade moved to Darwin somewhere in the early to mid nineties. I'm not not sure where when it was. So two cav came up with their Aslabs, and I just remember loving seeing these tanks drive around. And so I uh, I ended up joining the army cadets, and uh, and that was a really cool thing to do. And I know it's a bit of a nerd statement now as an adult, and probably got a bit of flack for it. But as a kid, it was it was awesome, you know, running around on uh, weekends and uh, one night a week playing army. It was uh, it was a lot of fun, and I guess the people that I made friends with there, I'm still friends with today, actually, and a lot went on to uh, to military careers. Um, I guess the the main driver for me was I, I always wanted to be in the army, but I, I also wanted to be a paramedic. I I'd, uh, also was a St John ambulance cadet and uh, was equally fascinated with ambulances and and that life. And uh, and so I saw the army as something I could do until I could become a paramedic. And so I had this uh, thought that I would join the army, do four years, be, you know, turn twenty one, and uh, and then get out and become a paramedic. And it seemed like a, a fairly logical plan at that point in my life. But I guess the final, you know, the, the question around um, signing the dotted line, I think I did it out of spite more than anything. I was um, 17 years old and I'd seen my career advisor at this private school and she informed me of, you know, the, the need to go to university. And I said, well, no, I'm, I'm not going to go to university. I'm, I'm going to join the army. And that led to an intervention with uh, my parents. We all came in and, uh, and we had a little uh, come to Jesus moment and, you uh, you know, I remember this person saying to me that only no hopers and, and losers join the army and people that, you know, really had no other uh, options. And I, and I just remember thinking it's really, uh, you know, that, that, that's wow. not the case from the army people that I'd met. And, you know, that afternoon I, I went straight into the recruiting centre and uh, got the paperwork, came home and had, because I was 17, got my parents to sign it. And um, six weeks later I was at Kapuka. That was it. Two weeks after finishing my year 12 exams, I was at Kapuka. And, I, and uh, you know, if I, I'd like to meet that person at some stage, that career advisor, and just say it didn't, didn't turn out too bad after all. Yeah, shout out to that person. <laughs> yeah, great, uh, great advice. Cadets is 100% a recruiting stream for the military, though. I was at Alami Cadet Brat and had a great time. And actually, my um, warrant officer back then in the cadet rank structure, I ran into years later doing an AME in Afghanistan. He joined the Air Force. 
Oh, there you like, go. It's a, yeah, very small world. <laughs> yeah, it is a very small world. I met uh, one of one of fellow cadets in Afghanistan as well, and then several of them throughout my army career in different uh, in different locations around Australia. So. Yeah, it's absolutely a feeder pipeline. And um, I guess you, if you're oriented towards that t- sort of activity, it's a great way to taste it and, and just see if it is for you and, uh, yeah, have a try of it. Yeah. So how was Kapuka in 98? Look, I think um, I think like everybody else, it's uh, you arrived there, well, I was 17 years old, so I sort of had my own little beliefs. And even as a, a cadet, you know, I think the number one rule was to keep that under your hat and don't tell anyone. Uh, don't let yep. anyone know. That's good advice for anyone that, that goes to Kapuka. I think if you do have some sort of cadet background, keep it a secret. Grey man. But, yeah, absolutely. So I remember arriving on the bus, at, I think it was like 2 in the morning, 1 or 2 in the morning, and uh, the RPs or MPs or whoever they were jumping on and shouting and ripping all the bags out and, you know, making us line up, searching our bags for weapons, which at the time I thought was silly, but when I saw the weapons coming out of the bags, I understood <laughs> some of the nut bars that joined the army and the things that they bring with them. So uh, I, I remember this guy yelling at us and, and saying, you know, line up, we're taking you to your dorm, you're going to be getting up at 5.30 in the morning. And I remember looking at my watch thinking, there's no way we're going to wake up at 5.30 in the morning. They'll let us sleep in and uh, and rest. You know, it's been a long night. But obviously, as everyone knows, at 5.30 in the morning, they came in and uh, and it commenced. And I, I think, you know, like everybody else, it's just a process. You, you, they, you know, they, they use the term break you down. I, I don't know if I agree with that. I think they just they just teach you attention to detail. And I think it's... Um, it's hard. It has its moments. And, you know, I was talking to uh, my daughter about this just recently about the, when I joined, I'm not sure if it is the same now, you couldn't legally quit for the first four weeks. Uh, I'm not mm-hmm. sure if it's still the, the same uh, same way now, but I think it's a great idea because I think the, the, the amount of people that would have quit in those first four weeks would probably be tenfold to the amount that actually did. And, uh, and you know, once you once you get through those initial, that initial shock of capture and you're, and you're uh, getting into the rhythm of it, you realise it's not that bad and you start pulling together and working together. And I think it sets the, the framework for who you need to be as a soldier in, in the army. So, look, it's hard, but everyone can get through a lot. You know, tens of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people have got through it before and um, I'm sure hundreds of thousands will get through it again. So... What are the memories from that early army career in the early 2000s? What stands out for you then? You're pretty young, you did your medics course, and so you had a bit of nursing, a bit of trauma training. Yeah, yeah. Uh, look, I, um, I went to Albury-Wodonga. I think we were the second course ever to go there. The, the course had previously been run in Portsea, so we were a bit of a novelty on the uh, Latchford Army Barracks back then. And uh you know, at 17, I joined the army and I'd seen all the recruiting videos, as a few of your previous guests have mentioned, people doing wheelies on motorbikes and abseiling and jumping out of choppers and things like this. And suddenly I was at Latchford Army Barracks wearing this, uh, I don't know, this ice cream uniform, I called it the ice cream man uniform. It was a, a set of ward whites with these maroon epaulets and yeah, it was just shameful. <laughs> there, was no, there was nothing great about wearing that uniform. The, the Raimi apprentices used to just take the piss out of us mercilessly and understandably. And, uh, you know, we go through all the basic training. You do all the theory and the, and the practical training. And then we were unleashed on the Albury-Wodonga wards to, I guess, basically learn basic patient care and, and things like this. And, you know, I remember as a 17-year-old thinking, what what have I joined and what am I doing? You know, after I'd completed a series of bed baths and washing old ladies in the shower and a couple of traumatic moments with you know, bodily fluids coming onto me accidentally, I remember going and seeing my sergeant and just asking him, saying, you know, what, what can I do to get out of medical corps? You know, can I, can I become an infantry soldier? Can I do anything else? Because I'm just not, 
um, I'm just not cut out for this. This isn't, isn't what I thought it was going to be. And uh, he sat me down. He said, look, this is just a process. You know, you've got to get through it. This teaches you the basics. And then once you move on, um, you'll understand why and, and uh, it'll all make sense. And at the time I had a little bit of disbelief, but, you know, in the years following, he was absolutely correct. That, that, that training that we received, whilst I didn't enjoy it at the time, probably didn't take to it as well. Um, it set the cornerstone to become a, a for for any medic or, or perhaps nurse um, in the future. You, know, you need to learn those basic skills. You need to learn that that patient care. You need to learn empathy. And uh, you know, as a young seventeen year old, we're probably not geared up with the EQ that older people have. And I think you learn that pretty quickly. So the the system worked well. Um, I think. And I think the, the last key point around the being in training was I was fortunate enough to meet uh, one of the WOE meds from SASR at the time. And there was a highly decorated uh, medic who'd, who'd been in Rwanda. And uh, just hearing his story and hearing what, what he'd con- had done in his time and thinking, wow, you know, this is, this is for me. I, th- I want to, this is where I want to be. I want to be in that, in that type of setting, working with those type of people. And, uh, and I guess that set the drive for the rest of my, uh, my career in the Army. Yeah, I was going to ask you that because early on in your career, you really set this path for special forces. And in fact, your second posting was to the incident, well, what was to become the Incident Response Regiment. Was it difficult to shape your career that way? Look, I think it, I think it's challenging uh, to do anything in life. You know, that's a that's a particular goal. And in the military, as everyone that serves in the military knows, you know, you don't always get your way and you don't always um, get what you want to do. But when you have a goal, nine times out of ten, you, you can achieve it. And, you know, the advice that I received from that person in the early days was don't rush the process. You know, by the time you get to special operations, you want to be an outstanding medic. You want to be a clinician who, who can hold their own weight and you're comfortable with your skill set. Um, you know, some people went there straight out of med training and others went there early in their career. It doesn't really matter how you get there. But I guess the advice that I received was to, to do your time, learn learn your trade and, and become excellent at that before coming. And I think that was great advice for me. It, it certainly in my career helped me steer some of the, the uh, decision points throughout my career and, and eventually set me up to, to get to SASR as a medic. Also early on in 2002, you deployed to East Timor with 5-7. And what was your role over there? Yeah, so 5-7, I was, uh, so I guess just backtracking, um, once I finished my time at, at IRR, I was, uh, I, I went to, um, it was Jairu back then, so I was lucky enough to do that year on uh, counterterrorism duties, and again, just that exposure to that life um, really helped me continue my path towards where I wanted to be. And then uh, I went back to the, the Army Hospital 2HB for a few months and, and was voluntold to, to go to Darwin. And, you know, no one else really wanted to go to Darwin. But because I'd grown up there, it seemed like a great opportunity to me. So I was sent to one Sisby and uh, to the health company back then. And, you know, I was pretty lucky in, in that time. Uh, the, the rest of the, most of the company had deployed over to East Timor. So I was actually a backfill uh, to fill in the brigade requirements at, at that point in time. And, Unfortunately, there weren't many MEC-1, I'm not sure if it's MEC-1 anymore, but medically uh, fit medics in the brigade at that point in time. And so I spent the next year basically with every combat arm um, support uh, as, a, as a medic deployed out on exercises. And it was a really cool way to see uh, all the different facets of the army and, and the different things. And I knew I wanted to go to an infantry uh, unit and I was lucky through in that time. I wanted to go to 5-7 at that time. And I was lucky enough to meet the WOMED while I was at... Uh, at one Sisby and 
in one of those sliding doors moments, I, I introduced myself to him and he actually had a vacancy. And within about a month, I was posted to 5.7 and Charlie Company. And, you know, this is this is six months after I'd, I'd just spoken with uh, our uh, schema representative. And, you know, sometimes you can go, come out of these schema meetings thinking, well, what am I doing here? You know, And that was certainly one of the cases for me. I'd, I'd spoken to the schema representative who outlined their plan for my career. And uh, it was fundamentally different to what I wanted to do. And I just remember being feeling really dejected and, you know, not not really keen on what I was doing. But once I took the uh, or oh, stopped the uh, pity party for myself, I yeah, got on with it and got back to it. And, you know, nothing a schema rep said to me has ever actually come to fruition. And so whilst they have a plan and they're trying to fill slots and they have a hard job to do, trying to fill the needs of the army, again, it's on the individual to, to drive your own career. And, and when I met this way, med. I, yeah, I expressed interest and, and suddenly I was posted to 5.7. So I, I guess the key message there is don't don't get disheartened with um, with schema interviews or, or DOCOM interviews. That you can actually have some control over your career as long as you, you know, keep pushing for it. Yeah, and, and maybe your eagerness to do your time out at Bundy, Mount Bundy yeah. training area, and <laughs> probably help that along as well. <laughs> I don't know if anyone's eager for Mount Bundy, but you do your time. Everyone, anyone who's been there knows you just you do what you need to do get through it Uh, and then yeah I guess I was lucky enough to be posted and picked up as the Charlie Company medic for 5-7 and uh, we rolled into about six or eight months of pre-deployment training and went to East Timor in uh, the back end of 2002 and uh, and we finished that deployment in 2003 I think it was March or April 2003 and that was a really cool um, really cool opportunity and a really cool deployment you know as a young medic I think I was 21 at the time yeah, you know, suddenly I'm a company medic. We're in uh, we're in East Timor. We were remote deployed from the battalion. We, we we had the Balibo area of operations. Yeah, it was just I just remember that deployment being a lot of fun. We got to do a lot of humanitarian aid. Uh, obviously, patrolling with the guys in the field. Ninety nine percent of our work as a medic, as you know, is prevention. You know, we're <laughs> coughs, colds, sore holes. And I think if you if you get really good at that, and and you know you you become really proficient at that, that's what makes an outstanding medic. I think that the trauma stuff is is obviously essential, and depending on the type of deployment. But the real, I think the real game changer for me is the medic that can sit in the field, or the nurse that can sit in the field with the team and, and keep them in the field um, at all times, whether it's you know physical or mental health. We have a big role to play in, in force sustainability. So. Um, East Timor was a, was a great opportunity to learn those skills and to and you know to be attached to a to an infantry unit and to be a part of that team. It's still they're still some of the best memories that I have of of my army career. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, disease, non battle injuries have been the highest um, prevalence across all wars. Hundred um, percent. Yeah, the trauma is the smaller part of it. Yeah, and that, particularly in that deployment, East Timor was fairly benign when it comes to war fighting, and so you know. I, most of the injuries we saw were, were local population. And, you know, there were certainly some sad moments and some difficult moments as a medic. I think you, you, a lot of your previous guests have mentioned, you know, the, the issues we have with, you know, trying to justify treating or not treating the local population in accordance with the mm. rules of the deployment at that point in time. And we certainly had a couple of those moments on, on that deployment. Well, I had a, a couple of those moments on the deployment where I started thinking, well, what are we, what are we doing here? You know, if, if we're not going to help the people, then, then why are we here? And, uh, you know, now as a, a more mature person and, and someone who served on continuous, I understand the bigger picture, but it's certainly at the time you, you become a little bit frustrated and, and uh, disillusioned with the, with the mission sometimes. Yeah. So after you got back from Timor, you know, a couple of years later, 2004, you got a posting over to SASR. 
and you got to do your underwater medics course. How was all that? Yeah, again, I was um, I was I was super lucky when I was at five seven. We I came back from uh, East Timor, and I'd obviously told all of my chain of command at every opportunity, every day of the week, that this is my intent. I would like to go to SASR. I would like to be considered for that posting. And uh, when I came back from East Timor, we went straight back into the big brigade exercises and, you know, they, they just suck up a lot of time. And I remember coming back at the end of 2003 and, and my WOMED sat me down and said, listen, there's an opportunity for you to do your UMS course next year and roll straight into SASR. Are you interested? And obviously I was um, very interested. The uh, WOMED from SASR, who I'd met previously, was still there. He'd gone back uh, just due to some uh, internal personnel issues. And uh, had reached out to my current WOMED and said, "Am I still keen?" So um, I was very lucky to have to have that opportunity, and and I was very lucky that my WOMED at the time at, at five seven released me. He ended up having one person down in his uh, in his Manning for a year to release me, and that's so that again very fortunate to have supportive um, chain of command. He actually sat me down and said, "You can you've got two options. You can either go to UM's course or you're deploying to the Solomons and then straight to Iraq." Because again, we didn't have many Mech One medics in the brigade at that point in time, and they were guaranteed deployments. And uh, and so it was a big decision. But again, the the plan was always to go to SASR, and I, I was sure that if I got there, there would always be more deployments in, in the future. How did you find your underwater medics course? It was, it was probably at that time the best medical training that I'd, in fact, definitely the best medical training I'd received in the Army. It was, it was an adult learning environment. The Navy, um, well, they're not the Army. <laughs> they're a lot more relaxed in, in the way they do things. They have many days off. Um, but more importantly, the way they taught compared to what I'd received in the Army wasn't that, you know, belt-fed lessons after, straight after each other. You had time to really consolidate. We had a lot of uh, time on the on the road with the intensive care paramedics in Sydney. Um, there were three Army guys on the, on the course and three Navy. And, uh, you know, the Army guys were all heading to SOCOM postings, either 2 Commando or SASR. And, and we all wanted to, to achieve and to excel because we wanted to be someone that was of value. So we, we put a lot of uh, time and energy into our study. You know, we, we punished ourselves if we didn't get 100% in our exam. We had to do laps up a, up a hill <laughs> so for every percent underwards. And uh, it, was, it was great. You know, we really, I learned a lot and uh, I learned a lot about what I was going to do. The course itself is really interesting. If you're into diving, it's, uh, it's fascinating the way the body uh, reacts to to changes in pressure and temperature and such. But equally, the uh, I guess the airway and advanced cardiac skills were, were perhaps going to be pretty useful. So I really enjoyed the um, enjoyed the course and it sort of triggered, I guess, the next stage of learning for me that I knew I wanted to learn more, that perhaps I wasn't uh, getting enough from the Army. And so I, I started my paramedic degree at the end of that. I, I signed up for a paramedic degree and kicked that off. And I think that's one of the hardest things in the army is uh, when you're really keen to learn and you're really keen to get more experience, it can be quite difficult. So, you know, the time I was posted to one Sisby in Darwin and five, even at 5.7, I was moonlighting as an enrolled nurse at the Royal Darwin Hospital in the emergency department just to get more exposure to medical cases. We didn't have MOUs with ambulance services back then. And, mm. you know, nowadays there's a lot more education options. Um, you know, the, the degree I signed up to in 2004, that was the only paramedic degree in Australia, and that was through Charles Sturt University. Now there's several that universities that offer it. So I think the Army's got a lot better in, in supporting medics and nurses in continuing education to where it was in uh, 2004. Yeah, absolutely. And looking at other service options because you cannot 
be clinically proficient and current when you're in the cages or behind a desk all the time. So you, you need no, to find no, a absolutely. mix of uh, meeting what army needs you to tick off and also keeping your clinical skills top notch if you're in that role. So, yeah. Yeah, and I think I think you have to take ownership of it too, Em. Like a lot of people mm. will sit there and whinge and say, oh, the army doesn't do this or the army doesn't do that. Well, that it is what it is. You know, the yeah. army's a big beast and it, it's not always perfect. And you either want to be outstanding in your role or you don't. And if you do, you'll chase it through whatever means you, you have. And if that means you've got to do some extra time, you've got to study on your own, even if the army doesn't pay for it. You know, the army didn't pay for my degree. I, I paid for it myself just because I found the whole process taxing. It was more. It was harder to uh, figure out how to get army funding than it was to do the degree. So I just, you know, you just got to do it. And, yeah. um, you know, particularly when you are in those moments that you mentioned, that you're sitting in the cages wondering what you're doing with your life as a clinician, then, you know, there's plenty of opportunities to, to, you know, do training, train with your peers, find other like-minded people that are sitting there in the cages with you and, and get after it. Yeah, get in and, and do a shift after work and yeah, that's right. at the hospital or whatever, yeah. Well, you know, while you're counting the boxes, do a drill, do a, you know, run run a scenario for each other, test each other, you know, it's take the Pepsi challenge. It's uh, <laughs> it, There's a lot you can do to continue your training rather than, than just whinge about not having training. You had a couple of years at uh, SASR before you got the Guernsey to Afghan in 2008. How was that time filled in between? Were you busy? Uh, look, so, yeah, I, I got there in November 2004 and went straight on team as an underwater medic. So I was attached to a dive troop. And, yeah, it's 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 busy. You know, you, I remember doing my first PT session with them and thinking, well, I've, it's uh, – this is it's on. <laughs> this is a lot. It was uh, everything I thought it would be and more. And uh, but what I loved about being there was everyone's a professional. You know, everyone wants to be the best at what they do, and the expectation is you are the best at what you do. And as a medic attached to a you know to a squadron or to a, tr- a troop, you're not there to kick doors and you know throw grenades. You're there to save their lives or save the lives of others if they get injured. And so, you know, the expectation is that you understand because they each troop has PAFAs, you know, patrol advanced first aiders. They're, they're quite competent in what they do as well. Um, so you need to bring a skill set that they don't they don't have, and, and obviously the skill set we have is, is more enhanced medical capability. And so, you know, the whole time I was on team, you, you're just being continuously tested. You know, the, the guys will throw things at you and ask questions, and so you, you need to be ready. And uh, that's just the culture of that place. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's you know that constant pursuit of excellence and that constant you know review of your performance and what can you do better. And that first year taught me you know who who they were and 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 what they were. And, uh, yeah, so most of 2005 I was on team. Uh, we did the counterterrorism and special recovery roles, and yeah, it was it was a great learning experience in, into SOCOM and, and to SASR. It was really um, a good way to start. And then I actually deployed in, uh, in 2006 um, to, with, uh, with uh, SASR, so that was the uh, Rotation 3. Oh, right, yep. Yep, so, uh, so the... Same troop and same squadron that I'd been on team with was deploying and I was lucky enough to be selected as the medic to go with them. So we went over in 2006 on rotation three, which was uh, still fairly early days for, for the SOTG rotations. And it was probably the first summer, the first uh, warfighting season. The, the previous two rotations had obviously had stuff on, but this was the first time we were going into a uh, full summer deployment. So, um, look, uh, like everyone's deployment to, to Afghanistan, it was uh, trauma, trauma, trauma. I think the, the first day we were there, 
Um, the first casualty we saw was brought in. He'd uh, a guy had had an argument with his neighbour, and so his neighbour dug up an anti-personnel mine, put it out the front of this guy's house, and then called him out and blew his leg off. So, you know, I just remember thinking, "Wow, this is day one." You know, we'd arrived the night before. Straight away, we got called down to the uh, the American FST. They they just had a um, there was only SOTG and a US Special Forces detachment uh, on at Tarrant at this time, and then a very small, um, I guess, surgical light capability with the uh, with the Americans, one surgeon, a nurse anaesthetist, and and about maybe six or seven people in the team altogether. So, um, look, we spent the next five months working together. The um, the FST, we were very light on the ground and we had multiple uh, mass casualties just over and over and over again at that point in time. We just continuously were receiving um, civilian mass casualty events. To the point where, you know, we even had um, one of our unsung heroes of our trip, a guy named Philip de Bomford. He was the uh, sergeant, might have been a warrant officer actually, Truckee. Yeah, this guy was doing all of our blood transfusions. He was a CFA and he ended up being the guy that was taking blood off people and doing the blood, direct blood uh, draws So because we didn't have enough people. So, you know, he was uh, coordinating the morgue. He was basically being the not a triage person but a coordinator in there and, and pulling blood off um off uh, the the walking donors, so so you had a trucky running your walking blood bank and then giving you yep. that blood so you could transfuse it into someone else. What a legend! Hundred <laughs> percent, yeah. Look, but that's we everyone yeah. just had to pitch in, right? So, and that wasn't every day, but it was certainly on the days where we were overwhelmed and we just had to do what we had to do. And you know, I I, I should give him a shout out here because I think he is one of those unsung heroes that probably didn't get the credit he deserved for all the work he did. Behind, he was sort of an unofficial uh, CSM behind the scenes and did a lot of coordination, and uh, and that was just one of the things he did. He uh, he ran the morgue, he did that, and uh, but I guess it's it's just testament to the type of people that we deploy with and people that can jump in once you give them enough education and you can show and they they show competence, then uh, then you can have a truckie doing them. I'm, yeah. I'm sure that there will be some <laughs> medical professionals listening to this quite upset, but, uh, you know, yeah. on the day it, uh, it, it worked. So Similarly, like no one ever says that's not my job if they're a decent military clinician, you know, even if yeah. he's actually loading the truck or doing something else. Like we, you you got to have a broad skill set sitting 100%. behind an op whatever it is like yeah yeah and i think you i think you've just got to be adaptable and and again and not mm. not whinge you know i think you know we're often called to do things that we don't like you know it might be i don't know pulling a, an op guard or a, or a picket or helping mop out the, the the mess tent whatever the case may be that i think you know being a soldier you just got to get on with it and 99 percent do i think that's one of the cool things about the army is that you meet people that have a similar mindset and 99 percent have that mentality of just getting on with the job and doing the best they can um and that was certainly the case in afghanistan so we were we uh yeah we, we saw a lot of trauma and um saw a lot of i guess as a medic it was an amazing opportunity to to practice the skills that i'd learned over the six years before and um you know i really was able to tick all the boxes that i wanted to tick from a from a medical perspective and some you know being able to put in you know to intubate in the field to um, put in chest tubes to decompress to traumatic amputations out in the field you, you name it, we got. I, got, I was able to do it. And, and so I was very fortunate on that deployment um, to be able to do all of those things. And I think, uh, you know, similar to, to the guys like Bomber being uh, ready for uh, doing his role, I think the key lesson I had for that, for that trip is you don't know what you, 
you're going to be exposed to, but you can uh, you can only get yourself ready to so far. So I think if you you train and you train and you train and you train and you train, then um, you're pretty much ready for whatever comes. And you know, there's going to be a case that you just don't know. There's going to be a case where you or a patient that you're just unsure of what's happening, you know, a hundred percent, but you just revert back to your basics and, and, and treat symptomatically. And I think if you've got those underlying skills, then um, you can deal with those complex cases and, uh, and, and make a, a positive benefit. Just innovate to your environment. Yeah, that's right. And I think, you know, the, and I've heard one of your previous guests say that just to keep in the back of your mind, often the care you're providing them is better than, than the care they would have received if you weren't there. You know, so I had a, um, a particular case where, unfortunately, a lady, um, I was called in the back of the pavehawk. We, we were called out to a FOB to a fitting un- unconscious patient. We didn't really hear much more. So myself and this American medic flew out to get her. And, uh, you know, the, the chopper took rounds on the way in. It was a particularly hostile FOB. So they were shooting at the chopper on the way in. It was about one in the morning and we landed. We didn't have much time because obviously they just start shooting at the noise. So... The lady gets thrown in the back with us and uh, on a stretcher, as does her husband, who's handcuffed and, and hooded, you know, so we obviously have to search him quickly and make sure he's safe and then we can get back on to, you know, doing what we, we need to do, which is support the lady. And all the medic said to me was, you know, she's fitting. And I was like, oh, okay. And then he said, she hasn't regained consciousness. And I was like, okay, cool. And then he shut the door and, uh, and we took off, you know. And so I was starting to have a look at this lady and she wasn't fitting at the time. And I was having a quick primary search along her and I, I ran my hand under the blanket and felt something super weird. And so I, you know, looked under, turned a red light on and, and uh, saw a, a, a breached baby, you know, a fettling breached baby. So unfortunately the head had caught and I was like, oh, this is what's happening. So, um, you know, there was this baby just um, stuck inside the lady and uh, hadn't come out. The head was uh, obviously holding it up. Uh, all the way, all the way delivered, almost except for the uh, except for the head. So, um, look, I'd never, you know, whilst I was a UM and had basic <laughs> obstetric uh, training, I'd certainly never trained for this moment, and uh, and and really was confronted with it, thinking, what what do I do here? You know, this lady is obviously in a, in a fairly precarious position, and I just remember thinking, well, I can only do what I can do, and that's you know, treat symptomatically. I'll keep trying to treat her. Unfortunately, she arrested. Uh, probably 10 minutes into the flight. And uh, and so well, I, was, I thought, well, all we can do here is CPR and we'll just try and keep this lady alive um, for the surgical team to, to hopefully make some sort of intervention. So uh, we, we did CPR on the lady and tried to, to keep her alive and we got her back to the um, the field surgical team who, you know, we rushed her straight into the operating theatre and they had a look at her and cut her straight open, uh, opened her up and anaesthetised and Unfortunately, she uh, she passed away, as did the baby, and she was actually carrying twins, and so both the uh, both the babies passed away. And I think you know when you when you reflect on those moments, you think, well, could I have done more? Should I have done more? And I think every every medical professional has these moments, and I, and I think the way I atone for what we did on that night is to make sure what is to think that well, we gave her the best possible care that we could on the day. I'm sure there were things we could have done better. We could have turned left when we turned right. But on the night, um, we did the best we could to, to try and save that lady and that, that baby's lives. And I think that helps with dealing with the moment afterwards as you continue on through life. Yeah, I, I 100% agree. The best available with what you've got and the knowledge you've got as a medic and you've got what probably an eclamptic seizure that's led to an arrest with a breached twin 
birth. Yeah. That's just completely hectic for an obstetrician who's been in the role for 40 years. So, yeah, well done for sticking with it and continuing on and trying everything. Yeah. Well, I think any medical professional would, right? You just do what you can yeah. do and, and you and you get on with it. You go back to your – and, again, I guess that's, that's the whole point I think I'm making is that you just – you treat symptomatically and, and you do the best you can and, and you work with the knowledge that you have and the skills that you have. And, and unfortunately, the equipment and the team that you have, you know, when, when you're in blacked out in the back of a black hawk, you, you don't have a lot of gear with you and there's not a lot of diagnostics that you can do in the back of a black hawk. Um, you know, simple things like monitoring can be quite difficult. Um, so, you know, you, you've got to really go back to basics, like do you feel a pulse? Is the person breathing? You know, you can't rely on your machines sometimes. And uh, and it's just sticking to those basics and having a really solid base uh, to work from to, to deal with those cases. I think, uh, unfortunately, I'd had a, a pretty bad run with uh, with babies when I was in East Timor as well. You know, I'd, I'd been confronted with another. I'd, I was doing a humanitarian aid uh, trip with uh, a couple of the civil patrol, uh, civil agency, whatever they were called, two of the artillery guys. And I, I found a lady in a village, a really remote village. It had taken us seven hours to get there with a, an ectopic pregnancy, you know, and she had quite a distended mm-hmm. stomach and the village was sort of mothering around. It took me it took me about an hour to uh, negotiate with the village to let her come with me so I could take her back to the um, to the civilian hospital, of, you know, five hours away. And anyway, we uh, so we, we eventually got the lady out and uh, and took took her down to the village and uh, to the hospital and, and unfortunately she passed away when they operated on her. And I think, and again, it's about having this, you know, trying to do the right thing and trying to get the best possible outcome. You know, I took the lady's body back to the village the next day and uh, needless to say, I I didn't really get many more volunteers for for humanitarian aid work at that point in time to step forward. But, you know, I think it's... um, just knowing that, that you're trying to make a difference, you know, unfor- the, the lady would have died. Both those ladies, unfortunately, would have passed away regardless of, uh, of our intervention. It's just giving them the best possible opportunity and, and, again, being able to atone for that and saying that what you did was the right thing. Yeah. So you had that AME role, obviously. You worked at the FST. And did you go out as well as a patrol medic? Yeah, so all of, all of those things. So... Um, yeah, it was pretty busy deployment. So when we weren't out, yeah. so and again, the types of roles that uh, SOTG were doing at the time, if it's long range reconnaissance, you're not. There's no requirement for a, a black hat medic to be on those uh, trips. You know, they've they've got the the gear. But if you're doing assaulting, or if they they know they're going into a compound where they may take casualties, then then that's where they they definitely want um, that that additional skill set. And so we were attached often across to other US assets. Uh, some of their special operations teams and and depending on who was doing what, probably one of the biggest contacts I, I got into was with a uh, in support of a, a US um, uh, team that had been ambushed and were, and were stuck. And, you know, we we spent a lot of time um, fighting our way in and fighting our way out of that. And, and again, as a medic, being caught between being part of the team, <laughs> returning fire, and then also trying to treat and save the people that were, that were receiving fire. So... Um, yeah, you, you do the, that part of the job. And then I was lucky enough that when we were there, again, because the FST just didn't have enough people, whenever we were in, in base, on base, sorry, um, the Americans would page us or call us at any given time whenever they thought they needed help. And we would go down there almost every day um, to support. Mm-hmm. And then lastly, uh, I was one of the first rotations to do the uh, rotary wing AME ability. So the uh, Pavehawks would come up to Tarankout from Kandahar without the, the pararescuemen in the back of them. They would put a, a, a what I would call a basic uh, flight medic in the, 
uh, Air Force flight medic in the back, and then we would supplement them with our with additional skills such as the additional airway and, and cardiac skills. So. If we had the opportunity, we would jump on the chopper other, and if we weren't out doing other things in the field at the time. So really cool and um, really great experience for a medic. I was very lucky to have all of those experiences in one deployment. And I think because we were so under-resourced, uh, it, it allowed us the opportunity, myself and Jeremy, the other medic who was with me, um, a lot of opportunity to do things that you probably wouldn't do if you had you know, 10 times the amount of people. Yeah, it sounds like more TK was more of a fob back then than a yeah, like it, a main base that it, it built it was. into. But then you were as busy as you were when there was two field hospitals on on the flight line. So yeah, incredible. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. I mean, it was a honestly, it was a fob with an airstrip. Yeah. That was uh, that was basically, and it obviously had the uh, Afghans guarding the the uh, airstrip, and then we were in our little fobs. So that's exactly what it was. Mm. So. Take me back to the day that you ended up getting your DSM later at four. What happened there? You got to tell us. I know you're humble, but you got to tell us the story. Yeah, it sounds more exciting than it actually is. Look, um, I was sitting with the flight team, you know, I don't even remember the day. I think it was in June. And um, a call came through. We were monitoring the radios. You know, whenever we were on downtime, we'd all sit around just talking shit and watching movies and, and, and hanging out. And uh, we were monitoring this firefight in the Helmand province and in a little town called Musakala, they, they were receiving casualties. And so this wasn't really in our AO at that, at that time, but we could hear um, what was happening. We were getting updates from the signals person working there. And, yeah, in a nutshell, the, uh, there was a Danish call sign, a SF call sign attached to a British uh, Pathfinder unit. The British at that point in time were, were doing, you know, what they call a platoon housing sort of approach. So they would take a little fob, like similar to the way they did in Northern Ireland, and then they would patrol out from that area. But the issue was in those provinces, they were just, you know, these fobs were just bullet magnets and um, they were attacked all the time. So this this particular fob in Musicala um, was... Uh, was was copying it this day, and um, there was some. There was a couple of priority one casualty, or one particular priority one casualty there. Uh, and so, unfortunately, the British they uh, they they flew Chinooks with a, with an amazing medical team in the back of them. Their medical retrieval was remarkable. You know, they had doctors, nurses, and things in the back for their AME, and so they they declined to go in because the uh, the the area was too hot. They wouldn't they wouldn't fly in at that point in time, and so. The next call went to the U.S. Army dust off, and um, they also declined to go in. And I was flying with a couple of um, pretty loose units at, at that time. That the the, uh, the pilots were, were absolute professionals and legends, but you know they they sort of posed the question: Should we go? It was only forty five minutes away by helicopter, and uh, so they they rang the uh, task force uh, commander and, and got permission, and we launched. And so uh, we launched on the proviso that we met them. Uh, you know, outside of the town in a field in a pre-designated landing area, you know, that was well away from the contact. They would jump, basically jump in the armoured vehicles they have and, and meet us out at this uh, this uh, landing point. And so we flew out there and we were just talking through. We didn't really know what we were going to. We didn't know the uh, the injuries. We just knew it was priority one. And um, so we're just sitting in the back of the helicopter chilling and we got to the, the landing point and sort of hovered over, circled around it a couple of times and there was nobody there. And so we had a bit of a discussion between the, you know, the five of us in the back of the helicopter and so, well, six of us, sorry, in the back of the, heli- the, the two pilots, the two gunners and, and the two medics. And 
made a plan that we'd, we'd do a flyover the compound and just see see what it looked like. And uh, the captain at the time said that if it looked like we could land in the compound, we're going to put it down. We'll put it down pretty quick. Um, you know, we'll just we'll go in. So we. Uh, we're flying doors open at that point in time. So, you know, you're a little bit more on edge uh, as you start coming in low over the con- contacts, even though you're moving fast. There's helicopters, as you know, are bullet magnets. And, uh, and so you're just scanning all the time. And we, uh, we came flying in over the, over the compound and did, a, did an orbit, did a circuit. And uh, the pilot told me he was going to, he told us all he was going to put it into the field just to the north of the, um, of the compound. There was no, nowhere in the compound to land, but there was a field just to the north and uh, he thought he could get it in there. So, uh, yeah, so we orbited out and, uh, and he came, came flying in low and fast and uh, the, the choppers are fitted with this dizzy ball and I, I don't know the technical term for it, but it looks like a disco ball on the top of the helicopter and it's meant to identify rockets and things coming at the uh, helicopter and it, and it then produces a response, shoots out mm. the chafe out either side. You know, I think they're 1,200 degrees or something, I'm not entirely sure. But so as we're coming in low and fast, the pilot is meant to turn that thing off before they enter, you know, they go too low because the trees and, and other things can set these things off. And, you know, this this right next to my head, this big ch- ball of chafers just fired with a bang and just shot out. And I remember just flicking back thinking, we've been hit. Mm-hmm. I thought, you know, this, this explosion right next to my head, we've been hit. And, uh, and then I looked out and saw the ball of chafe just go straight through the front door <laughs> of a mud hut, you know, as we were flying up thinking, Jesus, I hope no one's in there, you know. I think that's uh, that's a bit of a surprise for whoever's mm-hmm. in that house as that thing bounces through. And, uh, yeah, we landed in a field, you know. The, the contact was going on and um, we landed in this field just to the north and I spoke to Dave, the medic, and said, all right, let's jump out and uh, we'll go to the set. We'll, we were sort of, you know, faced nose away so the two guns could protect the front of the helicopter and we had the tail pointing back towards the compound. So Dave and I jumped out and we ran to the wall of the compound and it was – I don't know, it was only it was about 200 meter wall and uh, but there were no doors you know this british guy pops his head over and he's like what are you doing and we're like we're here to get the guy and, and <laughs> he's like okay well he's in here and I was so you didn't you didn't have comms with them coming in from the tropics no we, they yeah, didn't yeah. know they didn't know we were coming i mean they obviously knew we were coming in at one point in time but the, you know there's there's yeah. there's two call signs in there no one's talking to each other usual uh, military antics um, so, you know, this, this private or wherever he was just pokes his head over the wall as the contact's continuing on the other fronts. The, the contact wasn't going on in the field that we're in. The, that side of the, the compound wasn't in contact at that point in time. So they were obviously oriented towards the other way but saw the chopper come in low and fast over them. Anyway, so, the uh, yeah, we're yelling to this guy, bring the you know, get your team to bring the guy out. We've got, you know, the last thing the captain said to me before I disconnected from the comms was we've got about 10 minutes fuel and we have to go. And I was like, right, okay. So, you know, I'm standing there yelling at this guy and he goes, no, no, we can't bring him out. And I was like, well, you have to. We, we don't have time. You know, we need you guys to bring him out. And I don't know where the door is to your compound. Anyway, so I, uh, I looked back for Dave and he was gone. And then I realized that in my uh, – he'd, he'd run back to the helicopter by this stage and I realized that in my haste, like an idiot, I'd, uh, I'd left my M4 in the back of the helicopter. I just had my pistol <laughs> on me. So I was like, all right, I'm feeling like a right clown here. So I ran, ran the you know, 20, 30 meters back to the helicopter and got my weapon and connected back into the, the system. And, uh, yeah, I said to the, the captain, look, he's, uh, they're not, they're not going to bring him out. And so the captain said to me, he goes, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well – can I go get him? You know, do I, can I go get him? And he, he's sort of like looking at fuel. He goes, you know, we've got 10 minutes yeah. left. You know, he's added another, by this stage, five, 10 minutes to the last 10 minutes. 
And uh, I was like, yeah, well, I want to go. I think I think we can get him. And he goes, right, we'll take Carl, one of the gunners, who um, disconnected. They had miniguns, so he couldn't carry the minigun, obviously. So he, he had a Mag 58 or that, whatever they called it. And uh, and I took Dave. And, and uh, you know, so we got to the wall. And, I, you know, these are two Air Force helicopter mm. crewmen. They're not trained even in – I think they might receive some sort of basic IMTs. But, uh, you know, I sort of had to give them a quick brief and say, all right, well, guys, we're going to go around here. I don't know what's happening. And we're just basically going to hug this compound and, and, and try and find the entrance to it. You know, it's one of the bigger sort of you know, fob compounds. And so uh, off we went on our merry little way. And uh, we went around. And I remember just vividly coming around the corner onto the other face, uh, the front, I guess what I would call the front face of that compound. And, you know, the helicopter noise just almost dissipated completely. The gunfire was going on in the distance. And I just remember just this eerie sort of moment of as we were running along looking for the front of this compound, thinking, wow, this is – it just reminded me out of a scene of Black Hawk Down where these two guys had been left behind. (laughs) You know, they were trying to wander aimlessly. I thought, here I am doing exactly the same, wandering aimlessly looking for this patient, you know, in in the middle of a contact. So – Anyway, we uh, we ran almost the length of that wall, another couple of hundred meters, and um, yeah, found the entrance. And they, you know, with some two in front, you know, the surprise, obviously, with the guys on the guard facing out. Who are you? And then uh, yeah, we got in, and this guy was in the back of an of an APC uh, with the British uh, version of an APC. So jumped in and spoke to the medic. Uh, yeah, he was in the back, and he'd he'd actually intubated this guy. The, there was a Danish SF soldier in the back who'd been shot in the head. The uh, contact had initiated with by a sniper who was operating in the in the village, and um, this poor guy had, had taken a round to the head. And, uh, at this stage, was still alive, and um, so the uh, medic had had uh, sedated him using propofol and uh, and and had intubated him, and uh, and that was it. He was basically packaged, ready to go, and uh, so you know very quick discussion with uh, to learn all of that and uh, that he was relatively stable um i, I said well you know we, we need to go now um, we, we the helicopter's not going to wait for us you know we, we have to go and uh, and mm-hmm. the whole time too you know that helicopter's on the ground the the taliban are, are repositioning to find that helicopter you know you know that as well so it's just silly to have it on the ground Anyway, so negotiating with the guy, I said, look, can you give us a protection team? Uh, you know, he just wanted to let the three of us go with the stretcher. I said, there's no way, mate. We need, you know, we need some support here. So he gave us a few soldiers and, uh, yeah, th- I think three of us carried the stretcher and we had two guys out protecting us. And, um, Shit. and it's, no, it was only Carl, sorry. Carl left protecting us. He was the only one. And uh, so, yeah, so off we ran. And you're bagging him at this point if he's tubed as well. Yeah, so. ven- trying to ventilate. Yeah, trying to ventilate. Trying to keep. Trying to keep him alive. Got a everything happening all on the stretcher, and um, you know, so we ran, and you know, trying to at the head, just trying to give this guy the best I could possibly could, you know, to get back and. Yeah, it was, a, it was about a 400-metre run back to the helicopter yeah. with the stretcher. And, uh, you know, even with the adrenaline running, as we started getting closer, I was like, Jesus, this stretcher's getting heavy. <laughs> you know, it's, it's starting to get pretty heavy. And as we, uh, as we came around the corner, the Taliban had found the helicopter and uh, we were in the open field. So it was either go back or go forward. And I thought, well, you know, there's some miniguns on that helicopter, so let's, let's keep going forward. And Carl jumped down and, and uh, provided covering fire, started shooting at these guys in the village and then, they manoeuvred the helicopter to get the minigun onto these guys who had formed up in a creek line and were starting to shoot at us. And, yeah, so he um, he covered us while we got back to the helicopter and then, uh, you know, ran back, got it, got in the helicopter and the two Brits took off to go back into their compound and we and we lifted out, you know, really quickly, obviously, because um, at this stage the chopper was getting shot at fairly accurately. 
And uh, yeah, so we took off and uh, started our primary survey on the guy, shut the door, uh, you know, 30 seconds into the flight, got everything going. And uh, yeah, it's um, started doing a primary survey on this guy and, and you know, saw that he was significantly injured. And, and obviously the, the guy had told me about the propofol and I was trying to work out the propofol dosages in my head thinking, right, I've never really used propofol before, but how am I going to maintain this sedation, you know, while, I, while we get him back? And uh, I was looking at his O2C. He obviously wasn't satting too well. And I looked at the tube, and the tube had uh, become dislodged, basically, in, in our transit. So I thought, right, well, we've got to go back to basics here. We've got to secure the airway. And so ended up re-intubating the guy and um, putting the tube back in and, and getting it seated again, deflated, got it back in again, which wasn't too hard. And then, yeah, we, we kept going and, and, and resuscitating the guy through various levels of, of sedation um, for the rest of the flight. And we, we were supposed to land at another airfield, but again, because just due to the problems, uh, the, the captain said to me, well, what do you want to do? And I said, look, I, I don't think we should land. I, I don't think this guy's going to make it much longer. We need to get him to the, to the surgical team and just kept resuscitating him. And, and we landed in Kandahar on bingo fuel. You know, the, the pilot literally was shutting the helicopter down on the runway at the second we landed. Um, so he was he was taking care of that a uh, the Kandahar ambulance. I'd never been to Kandahar. This was the only time I went to Kandahar in the whole deployment. Uh, ambulance rocked up and and we're in the back resuscitating the guy. Got into the uh, Canadian um, surgical team and uh, and handed him over. And I just remember this really surreal moment after we'd handed him over. Yeah, and you know everyone being fully attentive and listening to our handover. And it was you know really professional operation uh, from the Canadians. I just remember at the end this uh, nurse coming up with a cold towel and uh, and a bottle of water because we were obviously covered in dirt and blood and dust and things and uh, yeah just standing there cooling off with this beautiful cold towel watching watching the uh, resuscitation go on and just thinking wow that that just happened you know it was uh, it was a pretty cool pretty cool moment and uh, you know Dave and I talked about it afterwards and we and we you know had a big debrief after we flew back to uh, Tarrant we just sat there talking about it what what went well what didn't go well laughing at, at some of the moments like leaving M4 in the back of the helicopter uh, in the middle of contact uh, and just really reflecting on it you know that we'd, we'd gotten this person to to definitive care and, and that he made it you know whether he has a quality of life whether he's even alive now and I know that he was repatriated back to Denmark I can't I can't say whether he's um, still alive today or or not, but we gave him that opportunity, and I guess we gave that, his family that opportunity to to at least say goodbye if he didn't make it. So yeah, it was pretty it was a pretty cool cool moment, and I think one of those ones that you just yeah. yeah very lucky very lucky to be involved in, and yeah one of those ones that you think this this is what I've trained for for the last eight years. How did you handle those um, fine motor skills of intubating with all that adrenaline after just carrying a bloke? A few hundred meters, like yeah. I, I, you know, physically, it, it is incredibly difficult to carry a dead weight like a person that rolls around yeah. and trying to, you know, yeah. How did you, how did you do that? I guess in a moving helicopter as well. You just, uh, uh, you know, the the hardest part about a black hawk or a pave hawk is that you're cramped in space and you're not, you know, it's not a nice aeromedical retrieval bed. They're on a litter on the floor. Mm. And, uh, and you've got to reposition the, the, the stretcher and, and put yourself in the best possible position so you're on the ground with the patient and, uh, and you just get on with it. Like that, that decision was probably made 10 to 15 minutes after the, I guess, the adrenaline of, of the moment of picking him up. And that, that adrenaline does wear off. You know, you, you start focusing on, on the task at hand. And, you know, I remember a couple of times throughout contacts and things thinking, oh, well, you know, we're getting shot at. But you, you're so focused on 
what you're doing at the time and, and the things that you need to do that, I don't know, you don't really, the other things didn't really come into play. Mm. I think, you you know, especially you've got a role to play. I think that's as the, the medical person, you've got to do what you've got to do to, to get that person to where they can be and you just focus on, on the task at hand. Distinguished Service Medal, first medic to receive one and a lot of ballsy acts on that day by the pilots, by the rest of the crew. Did that come later when you uh, were back in Australia, that notification that you were going to receive that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it did. Em. So um, I think starting with the ballsy actions, you know, the pilot for me, uh, he was caught, he was actually court-martialed for that flight. We had to write statements for him sure. <laughs> because, A, he flew the helicopter into an active tick and, B, he flew the helicopter beyond, to beyond, say, fuel margins. And, uh, you know, I credit that person with the decision. He is the captain of that of that helicopter and that, that mission mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, he saved that guy's life. And so we obviously all, all jumped in and wrote letters and things like this. But, yeah, look, uh, a couple of years after I got back in uh, in 2007, um, or a year and a half, I guess, I, I received. I was at work one day at the regiment. I was in the, the RAP there, and there was this letter sitting in the in the uh, pigeonhole, and I opened it up, and it said, oh, you've, you've been uh, you know, considered to be awarded a Distinguished Service Medal. And at the time... I thought it was my mates taking the piss, so I didn't believe it, and I, uh, <laughs> I was like, "All right, who wrote this?" You know, there was a fair bit of tomfoolery and horseplay back then, uh, so it could easily have been written by one of them. And then the second thing I did was Google what's a uh, distinguished service medal, because I actually I didn't know what it was. <laughs> and uh, yeah, look, uh, you know, fast forwarding, receiving it from the, uh, the not the governor general, but the uh, the state equivalent. Mm-hmm. Um, on the day, I just remember thinking this is such a you know humbling experience that to be selected and, and particularly on those SOTG rotations, you work with so many people who, and I'm sure the the, uh, the normal rotations are the same too. But definitely on my rotation, I worked with so many people who did amazing things and and really went above and beyond. You know, I spoke before about Bomber the truckie, you know, and so to be considered uh, to receive an award and, and particularly as a medic. It was, it was really humbling. And um, Jeremy Holder, the other medic on our trip, uh, he received a medal for gallantry as well mm-hmm. on that trip. And so, you know, to be to, to receive that medal was, was humbling. And I think, you know, medics often go under uh, underappreciated for the work that they do do. And so to be to have that recognised was, you know, it was very special. Yeah, well deserved. And, and received on for the group, you know, for those that did things that, that weren't written up as well. Yeah. That's, that's right. And there's many, you, you know, and I think one of your previous um, guests spoke to, to the actions of some medics who, who just, you know, often it, it just gets seen to be the, the normal, right, after a while that, oh, they've just saved another life or they've just ran out under fire to do that again. You know, it, it is some of the some of the stories that I've heard since I've come back are, are amazing and, and unfortunately many of them will never be told. So, um, yeah. yeah, it was, again, very humbling. We're trying to rectify that here one by one. <laughs> yes, you are. How did you find the uh, the flick around from sort of being in those contacts to doing the HA stuff to the big traumas back to someone who's got a you know a cold uh, and and then to the monotony and and boring bits of the deployment where you're just sitting around waiting? Yeah. How did you find your your mental health, I guess, throughout that up and down journey, and through the losses you had as well, of the you know the tragic loss of that pregnant woman and that. Yeah, look, I think um, 
how do you deal with the with the change? I, I think at the time we were honestly, and we were so busy and always focusing on the next thing that um, that took up a lot of time. You know, what as, as I said, we were sort of rotating between sort of three three or four different jobs. You know, both inside and outside the wire, and there was always something to do, always something to you know order, always something to you know. You've got to do the mundane jobs as well, like make sure we've got all of our supplies. You know, all the little things. You know, making sure we've got enough Panadol for the team. All the whatever it is, there's always something to do as a medic and, um, you know, you, you always find yourself being busy. So I think that was probably the main way I kept myself entertained over there. And I think I was very fortunate that at the time I I didn't really reflect on, on the cases at the time. It's probably been in the years. In fact, to be honest with you, it hasn't been, uh, you know, for, for five or six years afterwards, I didn't really reflect. I think we're, we're all changed and perhaps we can talk about that later. But at the time, you're sort of that busy that you're sort of rolling on with the next thing and it all, almost becomes monotonous. Uh, not monotony, but routine. And, uh, mm. you know, definitely some of the cases were pretty hard. I, I've spoken before about one of the, you know, there was a particular case where we lost a little girl who, you know, we spent hours trying to resuscitate. And, um, you know, it was a really silly moment where a medic, a coalition medic took a, a tourniquet off and, and she was compensating and fine. And unfortunately she bled out. And I remember that particular case being fairly, emo- not emotional but uh, uh, one for that most of us were fairly affected and I know Jeremy um, he still talks about it as well and you know it's one of those ones that you think you know it's just highlights the futility of war sometimes you know to see people killed and and the loss of life for what I would call almost nothing and and that you do you definitely do reflect on those moments and um, you, you know you do your best in those moments that, that that particular moment my therapy was to you know, wash the little girl's body and sew her back up as much as I could before we hand her back to the family. You know, that was that was what I did to try and uh, to make it better in my mind for for what had happened. Because um, they did a they did a thoracotomy on that little girl trying to save her after she bled out. And that, yeah, that's something. that's right. So that was our that was our third thoracotomy attempt. And you know, I knew once we started going down that road that this little girl probably didn't have much of a chance. You know, neither of the other two had unfortunately made it and. Um, they'd been Afghan um, soldiers and such, but they, this little girl was, you know, opening chest. And when you see a little girl's chest open like that, it's it's fairly confronting. You know, it's it's a it's a small human being, and and certainly now as a dad, you know, perhaps at the time I it didn't affect me as much as it would now. And and when I reflect on on those moments now as a dad of a, of a young lady, um, you know, and as a parent to to children, that you know that that my thoughts on that are perhaps a little bit different to what it was back then. And not, not that I wasn't empathetic or, or even sympathetic to it. It's just that I didn't have the, the same context that I do now as a parent and, and what that means to me. So, um, yeah, so I think at the time, you you know, you keep yourself busy and you, you keep training and you and you get ready and, and you move on. And, and I think it's important to, to debrief on those moments too. Some debriefs are better than others. And the way we debrief, not one size fits all. You know, not everyone wants a whole big psych debrief and someone external to come in and, de- you know, talk through the moment. Sometimes it could just be sitting with your friend uh, on the side of the helicopter or sitting with, a, you know, a colleague saying, well, that, that sucked or, or, you know, that or that was good or, you know, and reflecting, I think coming from special operations, there was always the desire to be better. So we would always reflect on our performance and think, what, what could I have done better next time? And that's, that's not a negative, that doesn't have to be a negative process. That can just be, hey, I, I turned left, I should have turned right. Um, why did I turn left? I did it because of these reasons. Next time I'm going to turn right and this is why. And, you know, you can lose use those opportunities to learn because I, I don't think I've ever treated a, ca- a casualty 150% perfectly. I'm sure there's something I could have learned or done better every single time. So, um, yeah, that's probably how 
for me personally, I got through those the deployment and, and through those moments. But also that you, I, I also had a lot of value in what I was doing. So I saw a lot of value in in being that person there. I, I loved, I, I've always loved being a medic. I, I think I said to you before this, I'd probably still be in the army if I didn't have a daughter. Um, I, I loved my job. And uh, it was, for me, what I was born to do at that phase of my life. And I, re- I got a lot of personal intrinsic value out of what I was doing. You know, when you're, when you're the person that stands over one of your colleagues or comes in when they're significantly injured and you see the look of relief in their face that you're there and you're the person that gives them the best possible opportunities to survive, then, then that's a special moment and, um, you know, and one that shouldn't be taken lightly. I think, you know, as medics, we can easily go down the track of it's never going to happen, never going to happen, but you need to train consistently for the day when it does happen if, if that door does open, you need to be ready for it. So I had a lot of, um, again, a lot of intrinsic value from that. Really sound advice. So you treated a mate over there as well who was hit by an RPG? Yeah, so uh, maybe three or four weeks after we arrived in country, one of the uh, troops was out on patrol in uh, the, the valleys close to uh, Tarankout there and they got into a pretty significant tick and uh, one of the guys had been hit in the head or had a RPG seven airburst over just over his head and uh, was significantly injured. So at this stage, we didn't. I wasn't in the field with him. I was back in Tarankout, and uh, we didn't have an arrangement with the the aviation team at this point in time to put us on the helicopter. But I spoke to our boss. I spoke to the Americans, and I jumped on the chopper straight away, and, and out we went. Um, I knew I wanted to be there to to recover him from there. It was only it was only about a ten minute flight. We were really the contact was really close to Tarankout, so uh, we flew out and the. Uh, the Dutch call sign that was with them unfortunately flew through smoke and uh, so we, we went to land with the Dutch call sign and uh, we quickly waved off and, and actually found our call sign. It was just one of those weird army things, that you, the moments that you have and uh, eventually landed and, uh, you know, the guys threw, um, use his name, Bill, in the back of the uh, in back of the helicopter with me and, uh, you know, Bill wasn't looking great. He'd had um, half his face blown away and, uh, as you can imagine, at this stage, he was uh, still breathing and conscious, so I wasn't as worried at that point in time. I could see that he, he you know, he wasn't imminent uh, or he hadn't died at this point in time. So we shut the door and got out of there, obviously, because it was still an active um, tick. And uh, I, I was looking at Bill and, and just treating him and, you know, running through the, the drill, so checking, trying to see if he had an airway at that point in time with half his face missing, but he, he was fairly patent at that point in time. And then I looked at, started sweeping his body and just saw the range of you know, the shrapnel all through his chest. You know, he had dozens of these holes entering his chest and that for me immediately became the focus. They hadn't been touched by the uh, PAFRA on the ground and for obvious reasons I was more concerned with those at that point in time than I was the, his face. Whilst it looked fairly gnarly and, and, and bad, he was breathing and he was, you know, semi-conscious holding my hand mm-hmm. and responding to um, commands. So I knew that he was still there at that point in time. So I started sealing up his chest and getting him, uh, you know, trying to find all these holes, doing a back sweep on him and just making sure that he was safe um, while we flew back in. Again, in the short 10 minutes, there wasn't much more to do other than seal all the holes that I could find. And I guess I, I dropped him into the um, the FST. We got picked up off the helicopter, dropped him in, and then they started operating on him. And I was sort of standing there, you know, in the, in the surgery thinking that, you know, how funny life is that, you know, Bill and I had been the last men standing probably five or six weeks before at my birthday party back in Perth, he, literally uh, two o'clock in the morning sharing beers. And then suddenly here I am trying to keep him alive in, in a war zone. And that was, you know, pretty, pretty sobering. And again, but I guess for me, it was 
one of those moments of this is why I'm here. You know, th- this is what I've trained for, and this is why that I'm here. I'm not here to kick doors. I'm not here to do anything. I'm here to help the team, and and this is what I can bring to this party. So, again, for me, it was a uh, sobering, but also that moment of realization that I, I knew where I was supposed to be. How did you feel coming home? Look, um, I, I think war changes everyone, and you know, I'm very very lucky. I haven't had perhaps some of the negative after effects. I don't have intrinsic thoughts about any of those uh, particularly bad cases. I'm I'm I've actually, I'm actually reasonably comfortable. I, Sometimes when I reflect on, you know, particularly that little girl, it's it's more sadness. You know, it's just the, the futility of, of war and that, yeah. you know, after X amount of years, you know, did we make a difference? But you, when you're in the in the military, you can't you can't think like that. You're there to make a difference. And the difference m- might not be geopolitical. It might be super tactical. It might be just that one person in that one village that you gave them the best possible opportunity or you provided some betadine and some Panadol when they had a headache and they wouldn't have had that when you're there. So that's... I think for me that's that's helped me in in my post army uh, life and and moving on from those days. But when we deployed out, rotated out, I was on the last I think six or seven people for our rotation to leave the country. And I remember landing at the little air base halfway back to Kuwait, and we got off the Herc, and you know we'd picked up some people from Kandahar. It was in the night, and uh, you know we'd gone from a blacked out Tarankau every night for the last five and a half months to suddenly we are, the ramp, the plane shuts down, the ramp opens and we're on this floodlit airfield and there's rap music blaring across the tannoy. <laughs> you know, we're walking off and I remember this Air Force person giving us a pizza and a Coke and all seven of the SOTG guys went and sat down up against the, uh, you know, inside the, the hard barriers, the concrete barriers, sat down with our backs against the wall, spread out and we're just eating quietly. And everyone else was inside this house partying. And I just remember thinking maybe maybe there's a little bit of adjustment that needs to go on here, you know, starting now where we're still pretty switched on to what's happening. But I think everyone, you know, everyone that's deployed back, particularly in modern deployments or rotated back, it's a fairly quick turnaround. You know, you're going from being on patrol, doing all of these things, being, just even being in, even if you're just in the fob, being on guard for, for rockets and things like that, you're always on edge a little bit. And uh, and then coming back and then and then you know go, settling back into normal life it can be fairly mundane and or you know for some people it's it's, it's probably quite frightening if, especially if you've done a lot of driving and you, you've got to drive back so it's um for me I think I was lucky I had a role to go back into and I we were very busy again so I, I rolled straight back into the regiment and continued on where I'd left off pre deployment and you know. I, SSR has a, a rotational sort of a deployment mentality. Everyone's always doing something. People are going everywhere. So you, it's always on. There's not much downtime back then. Uh, I'm not sure what it's like now. But, you know, I, I worked with guys who deployed to Afghanistan 14, 15 times. So, you know, it's it's a fairly busy tempo there and, and you sort of have to just get back on. And for me, that I think that helped me in that I became busy straight away. I didn't have time to sort of really reflect or, or uh, for me personally, others might prefer the time, but... Uh, for my brain and the way it works, it was much better to to get on with it. What would you say your biggest challenge has been in life or professionally? Oh, in life? Jesus, <laughs> oh, that's a big question. Yeah, so look, I think the biggest challenge is, um, to be honest, the biggest challenge for me has been my uh, understanding of mental health. And uh, And, you know, back then in those days, I really didn't understand how people could have PTSD if they went outside the wire, you know, and, and I, I put my hand up, I had it wrong, you know, I, I'm ashamed of my thought processes back then. But back then, I, I just didn't understand. I thought, how, how do you have PTSD if you worked in a kitchen and, and then you've come back and, you know, you're now throwing yourself down? I, I really didn't understand it. And 
I guess it took the suicide of a couple of, well, one particular friend of mine who had a similar sort of career where he didn't really go anywhere, but it, it took his suicide to make me actually think there's something here, you know, there, there's something here that I don't understand and I need to go and learn. And, uh, and so that I embarked on, you know, after his funeral, I, I went and learned as much as I could about PTSD and, and I'd sort of just paid it off, you know, particularly at the unit I was working at the time, it wasn't really a thing that we talked about. And I've spent the last few years now really learn, seeking to understand PTSD and mental health and and, the, and these sorts of things. And now to to a point where you know in my civilian life I'm I'm a peer advocate for the uh, company that I work for and I'm really passionate about these things. And and so that for me has probably been the biggest life lesson, both professionally and personally, is is you know putting my my own thoughts which were wrong uh, behind me and growing personally in that, in that space. Yeah, and I think you you raise a really good point, Brad, in that vicarious trauma is a real thing too. You don't have to have been on the ground and, you know, directly in the action, but just hearing those intelligence reports about the threat and the brutality of the enemy every day or, absolutely, um, you know, the psychs, I feel for them, just having to listen to horrific events like 20 30 times as they're doing return to australia medicals from different people sort of sometimes your imagination is worse than reality so it takes you back there and you're um imagining what happened as people uh, are talking about it so yeah i'd agree my view widened as i matured but back then i really thought oh you know if you're doing okay at the time then you'll be fine and how has that proven us wrong over the years? So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You made a decision to leave Defence and what was the catalyst for that after your daughter was born? Yeah, exactly that. Um, look, I I love, I, I still love the Army. I'm one of those losers that <laughs> just thinks the Army's great. But uh, I really loved my time in the Army. And, you know, I had a very awesome career and, and was doing some really fun things at the time. But I guess two things happened. One was I was at 27. I was, you know, I think I made sergeant 26, 27 and became an admin person and was starting to move further away from the tools as such. And I was staring down a pathway of a, of a posting to uh, – the school and then becoming a warrant officer and then doing the warrant officer shuffle, which it's an essential thing that needs to happen. You know, we need really good people at the school and we need really good warrant officers within the core to, to drive and, and sustain. But for me, I just, I didn't see much in that that I really wanted to do. That wasn't what I'd set out to do when I joined the army. And then, you, you know, my uh, my daughter was born uh, very quickly, emergency C-section in uh, October of 2008. And uh, I remember coming home, from, driving home from the hospital, you know, so we'd gone in for a scan and a 35-week scan, suddenly we had a baby. And uh, I just remember driving home from the hospital and just having this, you know, polarising moment where I was like, I, I need to get out of the army. That's it. I'm done. And uh, I knew straight away um, that I couldn't be in the army anymore. And, you know, I'd seen a lot of – I used to volunteer at the Legacy Kids Camp and I'd seen, I guess, the effects of, of losing a dad to a, to a lot of these kids. And, and I knew that that wasn't the type of dad I wanted to be, even just – being away a lot of the time wasn't the type of father I wanted to be. And so, um, yeah, I, I started enacting a plan. I spoke after parental leave. I spoke to my WOMED and said, look, I, I want to take next year off. I had a lot of leave saved up and uh, worked out a plan with with him and uh, started planning for my discharge. So I'd, I'd finished my degree. I, you know, I'd, I'd kept at it while I was on team and deployed and things like this and sat the exams remotely. And, again, you just have to do it. You just get after it and set yourself a goal and do it. Yeah, so I, I knew that I was going to get out and uh, I started planning towards that. So 
I discharged at the end of uh, 2010, and oh, sorry, the start of 2010, start of 2010, and uh, and moved into the civilian world. So I had uh, nine, about nine or ten months off. I had uh, long service at half pay, and then about another four or five months of war service and BRL that I wasn't able to take. So I, I ended up taking about nine months off and was originally intending to join the ambulance or the police. That was my plan, but um, accidentally fell into oil and gas, and and that's now led on to the career that I have now. But um, yeah, I think uh, I think when you leave the army, you've, you know, a lot of people leave because they're they're jaded or they're over it, you know, and that's fair enough. I think you know we all hit a point with our military service where we have moments where we say this isn't for us anymore, and uh, hopefully it's a positive moment rather than a negative moment. But even if it is a negative moment, you should still plan for it, and uh, it shouldn't just you know submit your discharge and hope for the best. You should think, all right, well, what am I going to do and where am I going to go and what does that look like and what are my capabilities? You know, just because you uh, operated a $5 million piece of equipment doesn't mean you can run a $5 million company. It's not It's not the same. You know, so it's understanding your own limitations and, and the types of things that you, you want to do. And I think I was lucky that I joined Oil & Gas because it's a halfway house for soldiers. It's a, I worked offshore for several years and it's a very similar mentality. So I found like-minded people, whilst they weren't the military and it's not the same, it, it, nothing will ever be the same as that, it was pretty close. And uh, I found a bunch of great people that I guess allowed for that transition period. I now work in a corporate role and I think if I'd taken this role straight out of the army, I would have really struggled with it. Um, whereas I've now had, you know, almost 13 years of uh, time to, to get used to working with office politics. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, I think, yeah, make a plan, you know, and, uh, and do it in a structured manner rather than leave in a haphazard way. And, of course, you didn't really completely leave. You stayed in the Army Reserve for some time and got pretty involved with them, even deploying on Op Resolute in that border protection role several times. Yeah, I love the reserves. You know, I think uh, I guess my key message for the ARA people that leave and join the reserves is don't be a hater. You know, you bring a lot of skills that the reserve can, can use and you have to understand the re- reserves don't get the same funding, they don't get the same time, they don't get the same level of training. And so, you know, the, the skills we bring into the reserve can, can be of benefit. But equally, don't be a hater because sometimes the skills that those reserves bring in are much more than you do. And, uh, you know, a lot of these people, I've worked with doctors who were privates and lawyers who were privates. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of very intelligent people who are just doing it and uh, for, for a lot of fun. And, you know, and that's, and that's what the reserve should be. It should be fun as well as building capability, obviously. Yeah, I really enjoyed the reserves and uh, I'd had a really good time for about 10 years in the reserves. Mm. So your daughter was also pretty sick when she was little. Big challenge for you working through that. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, when when you're a health professional, you, you're dealing often with people that you don't know. And I guess an analogy, I, when people ask me, "Oh, what's it like to be a medic in the army?" and you know, and do that, I always use a car accident analogy. And um, when people say, well, "What does it feel like to be a medic?" I say, "Well, you know, most of the medical people that I speak to, I say most have treated a car accident." victim either as a paramedic or as a doctor or a nurse in a hospital whatever you know you see the trauma and i think as a military medic you the, the analogy i use is you're you're part of the car accident you know so often the car's still rolling you're trying to save often your friend or, or someone that you know and you don't know if you're going to get out of the car as well and and so i think that 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 moment for me or the, that sort of realization as a medic for me helped me when it was it was my daughter is that i'd probably been a little bit exposed to um, people that I knew being injured before and so but even with that said it all pales into insignificance when it's your daughter or your son or, or a, a person that you love very much you know so um, unfortunately my or fortunately I say fortunately because we still have her 
Uh, my daughter developed brain cancer just uh, before her third birthday, and uh, she had a tumor that uh, rendered her unconscious suddenly, and and she had to be resuscitated. And uh, and we were very fortunate. We were in a uh, big city, uh, so we're at the we were at the Brisbane Mater Hospital, and there was a you know pediatric neurosurgeon available. They stabilized her overnight, drilled burr holes, and she was operated on the next morning. But you know, in those moments, while you know she's being resuscitated in the ward, I was. Um, I, you know, I, I'm fairly composed with most things, but as I was watching, what I saw was, you know, the intern, you know, fuck it up, basically. I, I started losing my composure a little bit. You know, I, initially it was the nurse that came in. I said, hey, look, my daughter's unconscious. We need to start doing something. And she said, no, no, you know, she's just sleepy. And I said, no, no, she's unconscious. And I said, I'm going to push the bell. You know, I'm going to get the um, push the emergency bell here to get people coming. And she started rattling on about, you know, why you shouldn't do that. And I was like, Anyway, so I pushed the bell. <laughs> and uh, anyway, the resus team came, and you know yourself that often it's just who's around until the specialist can get there. And I was watching this person, and they just went, yeah. I was like, get the monitor on, like get oxygen going, and I lost it, you know. And uh, my ex-wife, you know, to her credit, she's like, you need to leave the room. And I was like, yep. So I walked out and uh, went into a commode room and <laughs> threw a commode across the room in the probably the only moment in my life that I've completely lost control. And um, I remember this utility walking into the room and just he, his eyes went wide and I just remember, I wheeled on him and I thought, oh, no, you know, this poor guy thinks I'm going to beat him up. And I just remember thinking at that point in time, what are you doing? Like, you know, this is you need to compose yourself and get back in there. So uh, after I had, I had that little 30 seconds, I, I composed myself and went back in. And I, I think being a – whilst it's exceptionally emotional and I, I was very emotional at the time – having the military background and having a medical background helped with the decision-making process, you know. So when the surgeon surgeon came and said, hey, we need to drill burr holes, I was like, why are we even talking about this? Like, go, do now. I, mean, I can see that, you know, she has raised intracranial pressure. I'd treated kids with this before who didn't make it in East Timor. I've seen this around, you know, throughout different placements and things. I know what you're doing. Like, please go and drill the burr holes now. And then uh, and then obviously the operation, It's it, it helps you with the decision-making. And you, sometimes, like, you feel like a bad parent as you move through cancer treatment sometimes you have to hold your daughter down so they can get an iv in and you know it breaks your heart but um i, I credit pr- perhaps my military exp- exposures and experience and resilience from those moments and getting me through those moments because they are very very tough for any parent yeah incredible and now she's a feisty how yeah look she's a young lady now she's uh she'll be 15 in october so you know i say lucky and i say unfortunate because as you meet people throughout that throughout that exposure you know we're, we're very lucky to still have our daughter and you know we were given a 50 50 chance for 10 years um afterwards that was the you know the, the stats and uh, and we said no to chemo because we you know we did enough research into chemo to realize that it didn't have any value for her type it was you know it was basically being trialed but there wasn't any clinical evidence to to support it so again having a medical background helped with that decision making process that you could put some thought into the decision rather than just be like oh, we're going to do it um, and yeah, we're, we're very lucky, you know, we, we've, she's now, uh, gone on, she's, uh, you know, a beautiful little, almost 15 year old girl who will soon be a young woman that doesn't, doesn't need that anymore. So yeah, it's, um, yeah, we're very lucky. Very lucky. Awesome. So tell me about your current role. You're in West Africa now with Woodside Energy in Dhaka. The only thing I really know about Senegal is that it used to be home to a really good bike race, which is now in yep. Saudi because of security reasons. So what's that Yeah, look, like? it's um, I'm very lucky to have the role in the company that I work for. I've worked 
uh, as you said, for Woodside, and they've offered me a lot of really fantastic opportunities. And I credit the military with a lot of the skills and the knowledge that I have now to do my job. And, you know, being deployed to West Africa as a civilian is, is a lot easier than being deployed as a military person. You know, I have a normal life. I don't have the restrictions and things like this. But it's a really cool opportunity. And, and I think, you know, if you, if you set yourself up for roles and opportunities that you think will benefit you, and again, you train for them. And similar to in the military, if you know what you want to do, I, I knew what I wanted to do in this company and, and that where I wanted to go with it. And so by setting yourself up and training for it and, and taking the postings to get to that position as I have to do to get here, then um, the, the world's your oyster. You know, that they offer a lot of opportunities. And I've learned a lot both personally and professionally by working for a big company like, like I do now. How does it stack up day to day in terms of security? Look, Senegal itself is fairly secure at the moment. Um, a bit topical at the moment because there's been a fair bit of protest activity. But the surrounding regions, as as you hit on, yeah. most of the countries that the Paris-Dakar race used to go through are going through levels of coup at the moment or they're just um, significant ISIS action throughout those countries. So um, unfortunately, they are very unstable and, and very dangerous countries to be in. But Senegal itself is, is actually quite stable and, and, and a really fun country to, to live in. The other main thing you've been doing since you left the army is your kind of the second part in, uh, with Terry Legard duo to climb the highest mountains on the seven continents, which is just an incredible yeah, look, it's, um, it's, it's an incredible um, privilege, actually. It's, um, to be able to do that is, is a really, it is a privilege. And um, I feel very lucky to, to be able to go with Terry, you know, one of my best mates all around the world and have adventures on, on all the different continents. And, you know, I guess the, the, the added benefit for me is I get an extra workout from carrying him up every single mountain. But that's uh, <laughs> this is the benefit of going second. I can uh, sledge him a bit. But uh, yeah, no, it's a very um, it's a it's a, a remarkable thing to be able to do. And, and again, the military sets you up for these sorts of things. You can easily live on the mountains, or well, not easily. It's it's very hard. But the uh, the resilience that you get from the military certainly sets you up for for mountain. Uh, climbing. I, I probably don't class myself as a mountaineer. I class myself as a tourist in the mountains. I, yeah, I, I climb, but I, I certainly don't class myself as a mountaineer. What's the mm. best and worst thing about climbing at altitude for you? Uh, the best is finishing it, uh, getting back down to the uh, to the camp. There's nothing really good. I, I think a, an ABC reporter asked me once after I was, I was on top of Aconcagua, what was uh, what was your thoughts on the top? And I was like, well, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm fucked. <laughs> I need to go down. <laughs> Like I, there's nothing. I've never had one of those moments standing on top of a mountain saying I've uh, you know I've achieved this great goal. It's it's always I'm only halfway there, and and for me that helps me yeah. keep focused. And uh, but once you're down, yeah, it's definitely a a great experience. I think the worst moment is definitely seeing people die on mountains. You see, uh, unfortunately, you do see uh, people die um, around you on on mountains. It is part of mountaineering, and um, and often it's a it's a very silly decision that's led that, you know, a commercial decision, a, a rash decision. And mm-hmm. again, it's just a, it's silly to see people waste their lives on, on such silly decisions. And so, you know, Terry and I have had to turn on one mountain before, and that was a decision we made together because the weather was too bad and neither of us particularly wanted to die in the back sticks of Russia. You know, we went back a few years later and, and finished it, but you need to have really sound decision-making processes while you're up there. Yeah and not be ruled just by the financial implications of not getting there that time. Correct. Because if, yeah, you don't get down alive, what's the point? Yeah. So what sort of training are you doing in preparation for Everest next year? 
I'm probably not going to climb Everest next year because because of the training element. Unfortunately, uh, my role mm-hmm. here needs me to be here next year. Um, so Terry's going to go. It'll be the first okay. one without us going together, and I'll catch him hopefully the year after. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how he's going to go up without his Sherpa with him, but uh, yeah, I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure he'll be fine. I'm sure he'll never let you live it down if he gets there before you. No, <laughs> anyway. no, I, I'm aware. <laughs> Uh, last one, what's your hot tips for young medics out there? Yeah, I, I guess for me it's um, the first one is be crystal clear in, in what you want out of the army. You, again, you're not always going to get what you want. Someone's going to send you down a path you don't want to be. You might be completely outstanding at what you do and deserve it, but you still don't get it anyway, and that, that's just life, you know, whether it's in the army or outside. And so be crystal clear on what you want and then fight for it. Even if you have those setbacks, if you don't get posted there this year, keep going, keep fighting for it. Do what you need to do to get there or perhaps look at another door. And uh, is this, you know, is this where you could go to get there? It doesn't always have to be lineal. It can be a sideways step to then go forward. Be outstanding in what you do. So, you know, as a medic, we have such an important role to play in the military that, you know, and, and it's one that we should take very seriously. You know, if you're, if you're just mucking around in the cages all the time, you don't really know, you might have just scraped through your course and, and you're not really that interested, then perhaps it's not the role for you because you are going to be the person at some stage that is the only person that can make a difference to someone's life. And um, you don't want to be found wanting in that moment. And so I think, you know, continuously try to improve yourself and, and be ready for whatever door or whatever the, uh, the army can throw at you. Also hand in hand with your medical skills, be a good soldier. You know, don't don't be the person that can barely pass their BFA um, purely because you've been lazy. If you barely, can barely pass your BFA because you've got some sort of medical reason, so be it. But if you're just, you know, eating chips and watching Netflix every every night, then, you know, perhaps go and do some training because, again, you need to be able to walk in, you know, whether you're on a humanitarian aid mission, whether you're with the infantry, whether you're, you know, helping out with some sort of civil relief here in Australia, you need to be fit and you need to be able to get in and do the military side before you can do um, the medical side. And I think uh, it's not being afraid of the suck of the army. You know, a lot of people say embrace the suck. It is what it is. You know, you join the army, it didn't join you. Get that into your head pretty quickly and just realise that the world doesn't owe you anything. The army doesn't owe you anything. You owe yourself everything. And, uh and don't rush it. You know, don't rush the process. Sometimes it takes a little bit of time. You can't be the CEO of a company five minutes after you join. You can't be the general of the military a year after you join. And so it, it takes a process and learn within that process and, and grow within the process and uh, and enjoy the process. I think it's the main one. And then lastly, I think um, for all medics, but also military people, is know when, you, know when to bail and, and then plan for it. As I said before, don't be that person that's sitting around whinging all day saying how much the army sucks, you know. I used to, whether it was the reserves or full-time, you know, the people that just sit there just whinging, they're usually the underperformers. They're not really putting any effort into training. Um, they're usually the first people that wanted to, you know, be thanked for everything after they've left the army. Um, don't be that person, you know. Find when you when you want to leave the army and, uh, and then plan for it. Brad, thank you for your time coming on to Cameron the Fire. You've had an incredible career and thank you for your service. Thank you, Em, and uh, and thanks for doing this. I think it's a, a really cool podcast that allows uh, people like myself to tell our stories and hopefully help the, the next generation come through.